Folks, I think you would agree with me when I say that I don't get up and get all political about things. But, you know, how many times does our Congress have to deal with something over and over again and not really have it come true? Why do we have daylight savings time still? Okay, this is not my favorite time of the year at all. And uh, I, I know I'm starting off my message all negative and everything, but man, is it the, the fall back? Yeah, I'm fine with that, you know. But we can't keep on falling back, you know what I mean? We have to eventually give it back again, and here we are. But uh, I'm glad you're here, and uh, hopefully nobody will be walking in in about an hour from now. <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyway, as we um, kind of begin today, just to consider the book of Philemon, and uh, yes, there's in my mouth, Colossians wants to come out, but we're, we're done with that now, kind of. I'll explain that in a minute. But anyway, last week we had a brief introduction to Paul's letter to Philemon when we connected the people that Paul addressed in each of the letters. And we noted that both these letters and the letter to the Ephesians were sent uh, at the same time and delivered by Tychicus and Onesimus. Paul wrote to the Colossians to encourage them in their faith and warn them about the false teaching that threatened the church. Paul also took the time to give them detailed instructions on how to grow spiritually, and that, that's what we've been through. So it seems natural to me that we should follow our study of Colossians with Philemon since they were written to the same audience. Paul's letter to Philemon is very much a practical application of the principles Paul wrote to the Colossians about, particularly as we think of Colossians chapter 3. So, of course, the story surrounding our two main characters is incomplete. We're not going to get uh, everything that we're going to need to know about Onesimus and Philemon. They're the two main characters. But the Lord obviously never intended the Bible to give us every detail about everything that we see. John very forcefully tells us in John chapter 20 and 21 that even his account of Christ was a mere sketch of what the Lord actually did and said. And so just as a reminder, and I'm going to start with verse uh, chapter 21, verses 24 and 25 say this. This is the disciple, talking about John himself, who testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now that's a, a little bit of hyperbole. That's a, that's a literary uh, tool to say there was a lot to write about, okay? And then just the previous chapter, in, verse, in verses 30 and 31 of, of chapter 20, it says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, simply because we don't have everything that the scriptures tell us does not mean that the scriptures are deficient. God's word is sufficient, it is deliberate, but it's also efficient in giving us what we need to know about God, about ourselves, and to understand our need for salvation, and also how to grow in Christ, how to be the kind of person that the Lord wants us to be as one of his children. So God revealed himself in a real-time historical account from creation 
to the end of time, which is really the beginning of eternity. He, he, he gave us all of that. And this letter to Philemon, even though it's just a small little letter, one chapter, it fits perfectly in the above description. God gave us what we needed to know about this situation. So over the course of just a few weeks, we will flesh out the purpose and meaning behind this short letter. We'll also connect this personal letter that Paul wrote to the main uh, letter that he wrote to the church, which we call the book of Colossians. So as we now kind of talk about the characters, who is Philemon? Now we'll answer this question in a moment, but I first want to consider the whole greeting. And we've already read this, um, and we'll read a portion of this again, but we don't need to go over this as far as the reading. Paul greeted three specific people, Philemon, Apphia, and Archippus. Now the common understanding is that Philemon and Apphia were husband and wife. Apphia was purposely included as a recipient of the letter. Nothing else is said about her really, um, other than just the general description, but, but she is one who's named as receiving this letter. We, we read that uh, the church in Colossae met in their home. I tend to believe that this was a house church where everyone who was a part of this uh, new band of believers met. All right. Now, there's others that have different opinions, but this was a young church. This was a church that had new, been newly established. And if you remember, we talked about Epaphras, who's talked about later on in the letter, helped to start this church and two others in the area. So how might have that looked? Just, just very briefly, here's a couple of, of sketches of what a house would have looked like for someone who had some means, all right? Um, this is one cutaway. You can see that, that obviously where there's holes in the house that would have extended around, but it shows you the openness of the inside of the home. Uh, the next picture is something that's a little more rustic, but you get the same idea. Um, this style of home is a Roman style of home. The Greek style was not that different. If you go to other ancient cultures, many had an enclosed type of environment. You think of China and other places like that. This, this was a fairly common way of doing things because it provided protection, etc. And if you remember, many times we're talking about extended family. We're talking about servants. We're probably talking about some of this being for livestock. All right. So, so this was a place where they could have easily um, welcomed a number of people into this structure, into this home. And so I just kind of wanted you to get an idea. Um, you know, my wife and I, I think our home is like, like 1,200 square feet where we've got a nice basement. But even with a basement, I mean, all of us would be kind of standing, you know, straight up, you know. Uh, we'd be warm. But, um, you know, other than that, it'd be very difficult maybe to all, you know, be comfortable, sit around, worship, hear someone speak for any length of time. Um, you know, you're welcome, but, you know, probably not going to happen. But anyway, so you get the idea. This was a little bit different style home that we're talking about. And, and there are other examples of then the book of Acts and other places in Scripture. So again, that was just to kind of give you a picture. Now, Archippus, one of the other people that was um, uh, mentioned, was possibly their son and the pastor of the church. Now, some say that Archippus was greeted simply because he was the pastor, okay? Uh, but others say 
that he was definitely their son. So it kind of goes back and forth, whatever. But either way, Archippus was also written. I, I think just the way it sounds, just the way it kind of comes off the tongue, it was, it was, you know, these three people and the church met in your home. So that's kind of how I see it. But Paul also greeted the church, the church as a whole, which indicates that the letter was to be read to the entire congregation. So this letter is mainly written to Philemon. And Philemon was known for his love and that he was a man of faith. So now we're talking about Philemon, and he is obviously one of the main characters in the book. Now, he had a strong faith, and I just want to remind ourselves of what it says back in Colossians, verses 1 through 4. This would have been written to the entire church, but also to Philemon. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, who are in Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. Now look at what Philemon verses 4 through 7 tell us. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your, to Philemon, love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Okay, that's a singular thing there, not brothers, brothers and sisters. So this is definitely given directly to Philemon. So what do we see? We see a definite parallel here to uh, Paul's greeting to the Colossians and what he saw in them and what was reported to him, but then also to Philemon as an individual. Now, Paul seems to affirm that Philemon had an exceptional faith. Of course, this was his daily life trust in the Lord. Paul's greeting affirms this, but so does the rest of the letter. In other words, he was kind of singled out. Paul also commends commended Philemon for his love, but he doesn't stop with these more general statements. He says in verse 7 that he and his group back in Rome take great joy and comfort at what Epaphras um, reported to them about Philemon. They heard that Philemon's fellow believers were refreshed by how he loved them. Philemon had a ministry to people and that word refreshment means that he quieted their spirits and he energized them in their walk with Christ. Boy, folks, do you need that today? I do. I think we all do in the times that we live in. And so this was something that Philemon did for his fellow brothers and sisters. This tells us that his love wasn't just warm sentimentality, right? It wasn't just a feeling that he had. And it certainly involved more than providing his home and some folding chairs for their meetings. Not that he had folding chairs, but you get the idea. Philemon demonstrated his love through words and actions that were a great spiritual benefit to his fellow believers. And this refreshment most likely came through helping people with their spiritual needs, but quite likely their physical needs. Philemon's faith in action was noteworthy. 
And Paul obviously took notice of it. Epaphras would have taken notice of it and told Paul about it. So let me ask you then, if someone spent some time in our church, would they share stories about how they saw you demonstrate the love of Christ to his church? Now, I want to be very careful to say that not all ministry is done in front of other people. And not all ministry is even known by others. And that's the way it should be. That's the way it should be done. So the question is, the question is, does love characterize what you do for Christ? Are we kind and patient as we serve others? Are we seeking what is best for the other person? Are we faithfully praying for others? Are we doing those things in a way that gives God the glory? Are we willing to serve even when it costs us something? And by the way, I mean sacrificially costs us something of our time, our talents, or our treasures. These are some of the characteristics of loving service that refreshes the spirit of other believers. Now, we're going to talk about who Onesimus is for a little bit. And by the way, just just real quick before we get there, um, we don't have any information really as far as uh, how Philemon was related to Paul other than Epaphras. We know that, if you remember, Epaphras somehow connected with Paul. He was the one who brought the gospel back into the area. It's called the Lycus Valley, okay? It's just the Lycus River. And so, so all of that is related back to Epaphras. We don't know if Philemon actually mixed with Paul or not. We just know that he knew about him, all right? So then we talk about Onesimus. Paul mentioned Onesimus in, the, in his specific letter to the church, meaning the book of Colossians. He is one of the messengers to the church along with Tychicus. And Paul says that he's a faithful and beloved brother. We see this in verse 4-9. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, like I just said, who is one of you, right? He's from Colossae. He's from this area. And then if we look at Philemon 10, it says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. So Paul was the one who had the privilege of sharing Christ with Onesimus, and he, Onesimus, responded in faith to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus. So there is both substance and mystery surrounding Paul's statement, which we will consider in a moment. What we also know about Onesimus is that he was an escaped slave and that he most likely had stolen from his master, Philemon. We see this in verse 18. But if, speaking of Onesimus, has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. The word wronged means to cause hurt, damage, or harm. Paul is speaking of what Onesimus did over and above taking off, which would have been a significant loss to Philemon in and of itself. Philemon, I'm sorry, Onesimus was a slave. He was his property. He, and we, we discussed that not too long ago about the slave-master relationship. And so he was a valuable part of Philemon's household. So even just leaving meant that the duties that he was supposed to do and the responsibilities they had and all those other things were gone. The value of him as a person was gone, and then over and above that, something else took place. 
Now, the overwhelming opinion is that this passage indicates that Onesimus stole from Philemon. I don't doubt that. But also may include anything Onesimus may have done maliciously when he left. Sometimes employees do that, right? Now, I have a story that I just got to tell you, it's, it's too good. It's, it's kind of sort of related, but it's, it's too good not, not to give you, all right? And it has to do with um, a friend of mine who worked for a robotics firm, okay? A robot assembly line kept shutting down, and they couldn't find out the problem. I think this was in Brazil, okay? This is a true story. Some of the robots would just stop working and it would shut the entire assembly line down for hours. And it was costing the company tens of thousands of dollars because obviously they're trying to figure this thing out. They got to bring everything back up to speed. It shut everything down. It was just kind of a mess, at least that, that section of the plant. Now, another employee had installed the robots, but the company flew my friend down to solve the problem. He ran diagnostics, but could not figure the problem out. And this he was there for a little while. Finally, he asked if anyone noticed a pattern in the shutdowns. And they said, yes, the shutdowns always happened at night when there were fewer employees around. Okay. So my friend stayed in the plant that night to observe. At some point, partway through the night, one of the robots suddenly changed his routine. The arm swung around and click, turned off one of the robots near it and then the arm swung around again and click turned off another robot that was near it and of course then that shut everything down because you got two robots that aren't moving that aren't doing anything and so boom everything shuts down <laughs> so we see then the previous employee had left for another company right after that job so as the previous employee made sure that all these robots were up and running, he comes back home and then switched to another firm. But before he left, he had embedded an extra routine in one robot that only occurred once a day to turn off the other two robots. <laughs> That's malicious, okay? So what could uh, Onesimus have done, right? He obviously could have known where um, Philemon's money was and taken that. Maybe he took some livestock to market and sold them and then just kept the proceeds and took off. There could have been something that, that uh, Philemon uh, produced with his household that he was in charge of and done the same thing. A number of things could have happened. Uh, he could have, you know, you know lit, lit some you know, shed on fire or something. Who knows? But there was some injury that took place, all right? We're not sure what it is, but this was in addition to him leaving. Now, we're going to get into more detail about this next week, but I just want us to, lastly, uh, regarding Onesimus personally here, we need to understand that because of what we have already read, he fled as an unbeliever, Okay? He was an unbelieving servant of Philemon, meaning he was not a follower of Christ. Now, let's expand on the relationship between Paul and Onesimus. And I kind of alluded to this already. I want to begin this part of our study by saying that I find it that what is written and what isn't written are equally fascinating. Remember, we already talked about the fact that we don't have everything about this story. We're not meant to. 
But just some things that I want to kind of kind of lay out here um, by way of maps. Um, on the map here, you can see where Rome is, and you can see where Colossae is. Um, Rome is where Paul was. Colossae is where Onesimus fled from. And this is just a simple, quick hockey stick. I'm not saying this is the route that he took, but it's roughly 1,500 miles between the two. Now, some routes that they say uh, Onesimus took would have been maybe like 1,200 miles by land and sea, okay? But I, I just want to give you an idea of what we're talking about. If we go by the Roman roads, and again, you can see where Rome is and the red dot is still Colossae, that would have been about something like 12 or 1,300 miles for him to walk, okay? That would have been a long trip. Um, by sea route, these are some ancient trade routes that we see here. It would have been um, about the same amount, but of course, there would have been the advantage of getting on a boat and not being able to be traced, right? He wasn't going to be running into a lot of other people. And he would have just had a couple of stops on land when they, you know, offloaded, unloaded, different things like that. And it would have probably been faster, okay? I mean, I don't know how it could have been any... I mean, you're traveling 24-7, right, unless you're, unless you're docked somewhere. So I tend to think that he, and I'm just using some imagination, I tend to think that he left by boat. Certainly he could have done some by land, but I think that he was going to get out of there and have the safest way out as possible. It's just, it's just where I think he did. So anyway. The other thing that I think happened here, why did he go to Rome? I think he, first of all, wanted to make some distance between himself and his master. But Rome was a big city. He could mix in. He could, he could blend in better and just um, be free, so to speak. Now, one other thing, the reason why I mention this is because there's an obvious thing that we have here. We have a slave who's traveling. What does it take to travel? money. Now, we already established that a slave could earn their own money, but man, this, this was like lock, stock, and barrel, like I'm out of here type of trip, okay? This would have cost some money, and he would have had to establish himself somewhere else for at least some point in time before he was able to maybe find another place to work or whatever he was going to do. We don't know how well planned all this was. What we know is, is that he was able to successfully go from Colossae to Rome, all right, so he probably took his master's resources to get there. So how did Onesimus and Paul meet? Now, we can only speculate about this, but we'll have a little fun doing it. Maybe it was something as simple as Epaphras, Paul's traveling companion, seeing him in the marketplace, right? Something like that. I've seen him before, right? Hey, aren't you Philemon's slave? Oh, yeah. <laughs> How's your master? Doing just fine, you know. Who knows? Okay. Maybe Onesimus needed help and heard that Paul was also in Rome. He probably had overheard Paul's name while he was, while he was doing his slave routine in his master's house. And it may have been that Onesimus heard Paul preaching about Christ and responded in faith. Afterward, everything about Colossae and his, his, his slavery would have come out. In other words, Paul would have heard his history. That would have happened regardless of how they actually met. Then we think of the length of time that they had together. We, we don't have any time frame related to how long Onesimus stayed with Paul 
or any details of what happened. We only know that Paul was under house arrest in Rome for about two years, uh, awaiting trial, at which time he was acquitted and released in this particular prison, prison time. But what we do know is this. Onesimus was a transformed person, right? He was changed. I am certain that Onesimus had already heard the message that a slave could be free in Christ long before he delivered Paul's letter to Colossians. He probably even heard the gospel in his master's home. Remember, the church met there. So now he has traveled, you know, as far as the Roman world is concerned, halfway across the Roman world. He heard the gospel, that glorious message of Christ, giving his life in our place, paying the price of our sin that we could never pay, making us free from our slavery to sin and its punishment and making us innocent of all offenses before God. That's what he heard. A runaway slave heard that he could be free in Christ. Now, getting back to how long Onesimus was with Paul, his Christian character had to have developed enough for Paul to have written the letter that he wrote. In other words, if he's commending this fellow brother to Philemon, something had to have happened. He had to have witnessed and experienced something with Onesimus to say, hey, he's a solid dude, right? That's not what he wrote. But you get the idea. I mean, he, 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 was, he was really saying, take my word for this. Um, as a pastor, there were times when, you know, people, when I, and who, who knows what kind of weight anymore a pastor's, you know, recommendation is, right? Oh, your pastor wrote this? <laughs> and who knows? But, but you know, there used to be that, that there was at least some respect for somebody who was a pastor or something like that. And so, you know, I, I would write recommendations for people. And I took it very seriously. There were times when, and, and, and I was truthful. So there were times when I would either have to tell somebody, um, based upon what I've observed, I'm not sure if you want me to be one of your people to write this. That's not a very comfortable thing to say, but you know, do you want the job or not? Because, you know, <laughs> seriously, right? Based on what I've observed, you see? So here's the point. I mean, there were plenty of times, by the way, plenty of times. It was the extreme exception where I, I could write something and write something substantive that was positive in whatever they were trying to pursue, okay? But I had to know them. It was, it was my name that was also on the line as I'm writing this to them, right? My character was a part of that. And so Paul would have had to have seen something, something substantive. It wasn't like Paul, that Onesimus just had, you know, pulled the wood over, wood, wool over Paul's eyes, right? He would have known who he was. Which brings us to the last part here. Why did Paul write this letter? So again, we're introducing this this week. We're going to be developing this more next week. But it's important to begin our consideration by keeping in mind that Paul's letter to Philemon is highly personal. Although the audience is the whole church, the letter is directed to one individual. It's very clear. 
Paul gives two reasons for writing to Philemon. We see the first reason in uh, Philemon verses 5 and 6. And again, we've read this already, but it's important for us to repeat this. Hearing of your love and faith, which you have heard, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. This verse is a unique combination of words. I cannot go into all the details, but it's but in all languages, how words are used together affect their meaning. So there's some words in here that used elsewhere don't mean the exact same thing, but used together like this, I want to try to give you an idea of what we're talking about. Paul the evangelist here is not promoting sharing the gospel. Now it says here, sharing of your faith. Well, that means witnessing to people, right? In this context, that is not at all what it means. Now, notice I said, Paul the evangelist. We're not saying that he's against sharing your faith, okay? Meaning witnessing. This sharing your faith is just simply different. So what I want to do is is use a couple of um, more modern translations just for illustration's sake. The first one is the Bible in basic English, Philemon verses 5 and 6. Hearing of the love and the faith which you have to the Lord Jesus and to all the saints that the faith which you have in common with them may be working with power and the knowledge of every good thing in you for Christ. That's much closer to the meaning that Paul is trying to write. This is much closer as far as not the English. I mean, the King James is fine. New King James is fine. But, but this, this is, is closer to the meaning of the words. There's another one called the 20th Century New Testament. Because I hear of the love and the faith which you show, not only to the Lord Jesus, but also to all his people, and I pray that your participation in faith may result in action as you come to a fuller realization of everything that is good and Christ-like in us. So when you kind of put these things together, the idea here is that the sharing of his faith was actually working his faith out of of having his faith be participatory in the lives of other people. Okay? So he was sharing in what he believed. He was demonstrating what he had in Christ to others. This was all about his love and service for them. That's what he's talking about. The sharing of himself because of what the Lord had done in his life. The second reason that we see written is found in verse 10. It says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in chains. Paul is pleading on behalf of a runaway slave, Onesimus, to Philemon, his owner. Now, we're going to look deeper at this. We've already said that um, Onesimus... Uh, ultimately heard Christ through Paul and responded in faith. We're going to talk more about this again, like I say, a little bit later on. So we have here who Philemon is, who Onesimus is. We've talked a little bit about the relationship with Paul. Now we've talked about why he wrote the letter. Paul is writing this letter on behalf of Onesimus. He is vouching for him. 
and, and it's very specific. And again, we'll get into to the meaning of that and how it connects with Colossians more next week. But let's think about how we can apply this to our lives. What we've talked about is Philemon's faith. And we talked about Onesimus' faith. Yes, we talked about Philemon's faith as far as how he is working that faith out, that daily faith. But we also talked about, his, I mean, it's definitely a reference to his saving faith. The fact that he had trusted Christ as a Savior. Certainly, we have reference here to Onesimus and him receiving Christ as his Savior. So what I want to do is ask you, I don't know everybody in this room and where you stand before Christ. Do you have faith like Philemon and Onesimus? Saving faith. And what I want to do is I want to ask you this question. But I want us to take a look at Paul's words, which is ultimately God's word, and several of his epistles. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Just in case you missed it. All right? Obviously, this is a quote from the Old Testament, but the point is this. We haven't, we can't, we never will be able to do anything to get in God's good graces on our own. We can't work our way to heaven. We can't become righteous on our own to the point where God looks at us and says, you're going to squeak in, man. Congratulations. It isn't going to happen. It is impossible. Now, Again, I know that we have a tendency as people to say, well, wait a minute. You know, I haven't done this and I haven't done that. And I'm a good person. This, does, this isn't saying you're not a good person, really. It's saying you're not a good person before God. Right. It's saying when you are matched up to the holy, the holy measurement of God, you don't even sign a blip, right? You don't even appear on the radar screen. And by the way, that you is also me. All right? We're not talking about a beauty pageant. We're not talking about figuring out how, how uh, less ugly I am than the next person in their sin. Or how good I look compared to so-and-so. Right? right? You know, I know Ted Bundy isn't going to get you to heaven. But that's what people say. Right? Romans 5, 8, and 9. But, and by the way, this is a beautiful little word in the scriptures. I mean, we, we, we you know, what's, what's that old thing? Conjunction, junction, right? And, but, and, or, and all those other ones, right? You know, we go way back. I'm sorry, some of you, it's like, what are you talking about? It's 1970s, you know, watching cartoons. But anyway... They actually educated us. But the point is this. This is a contrast. Right? We're contrasting the issue that we have of not 
being able to make it to heaven on our own. But God demonstrates, God shows, God works on our behalf in this way. God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were in that state of not being able to do anything to merit his favor, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified, being declared innocent, by his blood, by his sacrifice, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Folks, God is angry at sin, and yes, he's angry at sinners. And the scriptures tell us that we are already under the condemnation we already have a death sentence based upon the sin that we have committed against him. This takes that condemnation away. This eliminates the wrath of God. It's Christ's death. I want to look at Ephesians chapter 2. Folks, I, I could highlight some of these things. I'd be highlighting the entire passage, so we just got to read this one, okay? But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, going back to our first verses, right? Made us alive together with Christ. Now, now this is a past tense for those who have believed, right? Because it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It, faith, is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We go right back again to Romans, chapter the first one we looked at. We can't work toward it. We can't somehow bridge the gap. God's mercy. God giving us, not giving us, what we do deserve. God's grace. Him lavishing on us what we do not deserve. Right? It's both of those things. And that is how he rescues us. When we respond to what Jesus did in faith. What did Jesus do? For I delivered to you, first of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, all that which I also received. So all that which. Okay, we're going to get three verses here of all that which? Well, this is the summary. This is the summary of the gospel. So it is everything that we need to hear. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. In other words, he died just like God said he would and the reasons why God said he would. And that he was buried. Okay? We don't bury live people. We bury dead people. Jesus died. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. And after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to this present. But some have fallen asleep, some have died already. Okay, what's the point? This did not happen in a vacuum, folks. People saw the risen Jesus. So now, let's unpack this just a little bit. Christ. The chosen one, the one who was promised to come, the God-man. You know, the Muslims tell us <laughs> Jesus could not have been who he was because God can't die. No one said he did. I mean, it's serious. No one said God died. The God-man died. That's why we have 
the birth of Jesus the way it is. Because God and man somehow came together, 100% God-man, both natures completely sewn together, not 50-50, 100-100. And so, yes, God the Son could and did die. But God didn't die. And he rose again. The scriptures tell us both things, that God raised him and that he raised himself. Well, he's God. But the bottom line is this, he is alive today. There is no other religious teacher who died once that ever came back. Right? Most of the time, they have very well-decorated graves. Jesus is alive. And that is the only reason why we know that we can have life. And that is a promise from God based upon all those things that we just shared with you. One more passage. But what does God's word say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, see the connection? You will be saved. You will be rescued from your sins. You will receive God's mercy and his grace. You'll be declared right. Your sins will be taken away. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. Now let's, let's just put this together here real quick. See, the scriptures tell us here it's not just a head thing, and it's not just a heart thing. We engage with the Lord, with our emotions, when we believe. We trust him. We take him at his word. That's simply what it means. Everything that I just shared with you, we take him at his word. We believe that he died. We believe that he died for us. I believe that he died for me. And I place my full confidence in that. That's that whole believing. That's that whole trusting. That's that whole faithing. I have confidence that what he did actually took my sins away and gave me life. Eternal life. And that I'll never have to pay for that sin because he took it upon himself. But I also confess. I demonstrate my faith by expressing it. In other words, I'm going to live out what I believe. Right? It's, it's, it's not something, well, no, no, it's a heart issue that is now something that comes out as a confession. That Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Savior. Folks, I, I know that there's still some big words in here and stuff, okay? Righteousness, for example, that just means goodness, right? We believe unto righteousness. When we believe, we receive the goodness of God that takes away all of our badness. And that goes back to that idea of justified. We're declared innocent as a result. 
That's a judicial term, right? Here I am at a, at a pulpit. If I had a gavel and I had a, you know, a bench behind it, I could slam it down based upon your profession of faith and I could say, you're declared right. Not, not because I say, but God did that, right? So folks, I, I don't know how much simpler I can make it. But what I'll tell you is this. Without faith, this is impossible. So I ask you again, do you have a faith like Philemon? Do you have a faith like Onesimus? This is the most important question that you can ever answer in your life. And oh, by the way, by not answering it, you're answering it. Being noncommittal does not excuse us. We don't have to have a fist in God's face to die and go to hell. All we have to do is ignore his message. So I don't know your age. I don't know your need. But I'm simply coming to you the same way that Paul would have spoken to Onesimus. The same way that he spoke to many other believers because we took it right from the word of God. The same way that Epaphras would have talked to Philemon and expressed to him, God the Son came to this earth based upon God the Father's direction and he gave his life up. The God of the universe came to this earth, gave his life up so that we could have life, so that you and I could have eternal life. Never to have to ever pay for one sin. I'm not talking about consequences on earth. I'm talking about the forever punishment. Not one. It's all gone. Because of what he did. Folks, I'll I'll, I'll say another thing that Paul did. I'm going to beg you. If you know that you have not trusted Christ as your Savior, I'm going to beg you. Exercise faith. Believe today. Now, there's also this sharing faith besides our saving faith that we saw here. It's a faith lived out in serving, a faith lived out in good works. So I ask this question, if you are a believer this morning, is your faith in Christ recognizable? Do people see a difference in how you live that aligns with a daily faith and love for Christ? If your love for others, is your love for others noticeable? Now again, not necessarily public. But does anybody notice that you're actually a Christ follower? As we described before, do you live your life in such a way that makes a difference in the lives of other believers around you? Are you a source of spiritual refreshment to others? The next question beyond whether or not we have saving faith is whether or not we have a dynamic sharing faith, a living faith that makes a difference in the people that we worship with and the people that we church with. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we looked at a lot of things 
and we concentrated on what Paul said, but John also told us that the reason why Christ came is because you were you were showing us your love. You love the world in this way that you gave your one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. We thank you that God the Son came to this earth as the very expression of who you are, because even as we saw in Colossians, he is God. And he gave it all. I pray, Lord, that each person in this room, well, frankly, we're all going to answer the question. The question is how? And I pray, Lord, that there's someone who's not sure today whether or not they have trusted you as Savior, that they truly would believe in their heart that Christ raised from the dead, which includes everything else we talked about. And Lord, they would confess with their mouth that Christ is their Lord and Savior. We know, Father, that that, that faith is a gift. So we pray, Lord, that you'll work in their hearts and lives even, even now. We know, Father, that you have your way and your timing. We know, Father, that we have our own will. But somehow all that works together. And so we pray and we ask. Lord, I pray that you'll speak to each of us when it comes to the influence that we have with the people around us. That we would make a difference, not because people pat us on the back or write letters to us, <laughs> but really so that you'll be glorified and that you will be pleased with the life that we live in so that we can benefit people around us. Lord, Lord I, I do pray that, that when we do that, that, that encouragement of, of making a difference in somebody else's life energizes us too. But Father, the ultimate purpose is just simply working out in obedient faith. It's going to take some effort. It's going to be complicated sometimes. But Lord, guide us in the way that you want us to live together. In Christ's name, amen.